Welcome to the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes or so, I'll bring you up to date on selections from important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our November 2015 issue. You will hear a transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. Type 2 diabetes mellitus is an important risk factor for cardiovascular diseases. It is unknown, however, whether people with bipolar disorder who are at an increased risk for cardiovascular diseases are also at increased risk for diabetes. The authors of this article wanted to address this gap in the literature while also investigating potential factors that are associated with the risk for diabetes. They conducted a systematic review and meta-analysis in which they collected data on more than 18,000 patients with bipolar disorder. They found that almost 10% presented with diabetes. Also, patients with bipolar disorder are at double the risk of diabetes compared with the general population. No significant factors that are associated with the diabetes risk were found, however. In contrast, the current study shows that the diabetes risk in bipolar disorder is higher in countries where the general population is also at a higher risk. Translating the current findings into daily practice, therefore, requires fundamental changes in public health policies and healthcare systems. The current data also demonstrate that people with bipolar disorder should be proactively screened for diabetes risk. For patients with normal baseline tests, it is recommended that measurements are repeated at 6 and 12 weeks after treatment initiation and at least annually thereafter. Patients with diabetes should be screened approximately every 3 to 6 months. The authors conclude that action is urgently needed to curb the diabetes epidemic in people with bipolar disorder. It is difficult to predict the functional outcome in adolescents with the first episode of psychosis. Will they progress to a diagnosis of schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, or other type of psychosis? The authors of this article, which was funded by a private donor and the Spanish government, found that approximately 25% of adolescents have good global functioning two years after an episode of psychosis. Almost 10% have a very poor level of functioning. Very frequently, however, the specific diagnosis cannot be made until many months after the first episode. Much clinical and biological data are gathered when a first episode of psychosis occurs. Biological data are often recorded to rule out diseases with known etiology and treatment, and some are recorded only for research purposes. Globally, such biological data lack prognostic validity. The authors note that of all clinical data usually recorded when an adolescent presents with a psychotic episode, general well-being during the year before the episode such as social contacts, academic performance, and fullness of life, is of great importance to help predict functional outcome two years later. They conclude that the severity of symptoms at intake and well-being during the previous year predict improvement. A diagnosis of schizophrenia at the outset 
after first contact or the presence of primary negative symptoms predict a negative outcome. Patients with borderline personality disorder carry a high risk of anxiety disorders. Research since the 1990s has shown that personality disorders, specifically borderline personality disorder, are less stable than previously believed. Evidence that personality disorders have mutable courses have generated growing interest in exploring how the remitting and relapsing course of borderline personality disorder may affect fluctuations in other disorders and vice versa. The authors of this article use the final 10-year data from the Collaborative Longitudinal Personality Disorders Study, a multi-site, prospective naturalistic longitudinal study funded by the National Institute of Mental Health. They examined how borderline personality disorder and anxiety disorders influence each other's course over 10 years of follow-up in a sample of 164 participants. Study results show that worsening a borderline personality disorder during one month adversely influences the course of generalized anxiety disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, and social phobia during the following month. Monthly fluctuations in borderline personality disorder symptoms did not influence the course of obsessive-compulsive disorder or panic disorders. Monthly changes in co-occurring anxiety disorders, in turn, did not affect the course of borderline personality disorder, with the exception of post-traumatic stress disorder. The authors conclude that borderline personality disorder treatment should be prioritized in the presence of co-occurring generalized anxiety disorder or social phobia. However, borderline personality disorder should be treated concurrently with panic disorders, obsessive-compulsive disorder, or post-traumatic stress disorder when these co-occur. Increasingly, clinicians and patients are turning to an array of natural products and interventions for the management of bipolar disorder. Yet research regarding the safety and efficacy of available complementary and alternative treatments, especially in youth, is sparse. While these agents have little evidence of efficacy and often have small effect when they do, the fact that they appear to be safe and even healthful make them attractive options to try as monotherapy in some cases, especially for those with only mild to moderate distress. Furthermore, as bipolar disorder is often a lifelong condition and is diagnosed at earlier and earlier ages, the urgent need for early and aggressive treatment needs to be balanced against the consequences of early and lengthy exposure to agents with serious side effects and pediatric populations. The authors of this article, which was supported by a private donor, tested the usefulness of two popular natural treatments, omega-3 fatty acids and inositol, in a very young pediatric population aged 5 to 12 years. The treatments were used singly and in combination. The authors hypothesized that combination treatment of the two would be superior to either one used alone. Study results suggest that omega-3 fatty acids combined with inositol may be more effective than either one alone in the management of mild to moderate bipolar disorder in youth. 
In their conclusion, the authors note that their evidence is preliminary and should be interpreted in light of study limitations. Changes in the microbiota, termed dysbiosis, increase the risk of several psychiatric conditions through different pathways. The authors of this article, sponsored by the National Institutes of Health, aim to assess whether exposure to specific antibiotic groups would increase the risk for depression, anxiety, or psychosis. They conducted three nested case-controlled studies over an 18-year period using a population-based database of over 200,000 patients with depression, 15,000 with anxiety, and 3,000 with psychosis. Four matched controls for each diagnosis were selected by using incident density sampling. The primary exposure of interest was therapy with one of seven antibiotic classes over a year before the index date. Study results indicated that treatment with a single antibiotic course was associated with higher risk for depression with all antibiotic groups. Significantly increased risks were found with recurrent antibiotic exposures of penicillin. Similar association was observed for anxiety and was most prominent with exposures to penicillins and sulfonamides. No change in risk for psychosis was reported with any antibiotic group. A mild increase in the risk of depression and anxiety was reported with a single course of antifungals, which was not observed with repeated exposures. The authors concluded that recurrent antibiotic exposure was associated with increased risk for depression and anxiety, but not for psychosis. Iron deficiency in rats leads to dopaminergic dysfunction. In children, iron deficiency has been associated with cognitive and emotional impairment. Low serum ferritin, a marker of body iron stores, has been associated with more severe symptoms of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder and poor response to psychostimulants. In this study, funded by the National Institutes of Health, the authors used longitudinal data from two previous studies to examine the association between ferritin concentration and changes in weight following risperidone initiation or discontinuation. Study 1 consisted of a randomized clinical trial comparing the efficacy of risperidone monotherapy to the combination of risperidone and behavior therapy in targeting disruptive behavior in children aged 4 to 13 years who had autism spectrum disorder. Study 2 involved medically healthy 7- to 17-year-old participants in long-term open-label risperidone treatment at study entry. They returned for follow-up visits a year and a half later. After 18 weeks on risperidone, the youth's age and sex-specific body mass index Z-scores increased by nearly one point, and ferritin concentration declined by 15%. After adjusting for age and sex, weight gain was significantly associated with a reduction in ferritin concentration. For study two participants who had all been receiving risperidone at study entry, the agent was discontinued in about a third of the participants by follow-up. 
weight loss between study entry and follow-up was associated with higher ferritin concentration at follow-up only in participants who discontinued risperidone. The authors conclude that risperidone-related weight gain is associated with a reduction in body iron reserves, which appears to increase with weight loss after risperidone is discontinued. Preliminary evidence suggests that risperidone may also directly inhibit iron absorption. However, the clinical impact remains to be examined. This study examines the effects of different mental and physical health conditions on quality of life. To quantify the impact of these conditions, researchers from Canada performed regression analysis on data from a survey representative of the United States general population. Of particular interest were personality disorders, which have been linked to significant morbidity as well as suicidal behavior. The researchers found that individuals with psychotic illness reported the lowest quality of life. In contrast, mood disorders were associated with the largest marginal effects. The authors assert that in a clinical sense, the findings highlight the importance of addressing the decreased quality of life that occurs during a psychotic or mood episode. Further, at a population level, personality disorders have a large burden of disease, despite the fact that they are often excluded from traditional quality-of-life studies. Inflammatory markers hold promise as candidate biomarkers that may one day have clinical applications in bipolar disorder. Numerous studies from middle-aged adults with bipolar disorder demonstrate increased levels of inflammation during symptomatic episodes. However, inflammatory markers are also impacted by treatment and comorbidity, and few studies have taken these factors into consideration. Little is known about this topic among adolescents and young adults with bipolar disorder. In this article, the authors retrospectively examined pro-inflammatory markers among 123 adolescents and young adults enrolled in the Course and Outcome of Bipolar Youth Study, which was funded by the National Institute for Mental Health. The study measured blood levels of three inflammatory markers. These levels were linked with a number of clinical characteristics, including substance use disorders. Even after controlling for comorbidity and treatment, markers of inflammation also remain significantly associated with mood symptoms. Future repeated measures longitudinal studies will help move the field closer to determining the validity of these markers with regard to their clinical applications. Antipsychotic medications are the first-line treatment for schizophrenia. The authors of this article conducted a study to identify predictors associated with antipsychotic response. Their work was supported by the National Institutes of Health and the Rembrandt Foundation. The authors analyzed a database of 1,460 adult schizophrenic patients who participated in the Clinical Antipsychotic Trials of Intervention Effectiveness, referred to as the CATI. Subjects were randomly assigned to antipsychotic treatment with olanzapine, perfenazine, quetiapine, risperidone, or ziprazidone. Predictors of response, remission, and treatment continuation at three and six months were examined. 
Study results show that poor outcome was predicted by low performance on neurocognitive tests, previously reported antipsychotic side effects, negative attitude towards medication, comorbid depression, and psychosocial factors such as unemployment, homelessness, and living alone. As in the primary Katie analysis, subjects randomly assigned to olanzapine had a better outcome than patients assigned to other antipsychotics. The authors conclude that finding interventions that can improve neuropsychological functioning and patients' attitude toward medication might improve antipsychotic treatment outcomes in schizophrenia. All medications approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration for treating Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, or ADHD, have proven track records for effectiveness. So why do so many people decide that this kind of treatment just isn't for them? In this review, the authors examine why patients taking medication for ADHD are non-adherent to their treatment plans over the long term. The authors began their study with the hypothesis that the adverse effects of drugs prescribed for ADHD were driving people away, but they discovered something quite different. The most common reason for discontinuation was, perhaps not surprisingly, that patients did not want or feel that they needed the medications. Other reasons for discontinuation were that participants withdrew consent experienced adverse effects, or experienced either not enough or no drug effect. Interestingly, the first two and most common reasons, not wanting or needing medication and withdrawing consent, are simply blanket categories that cover a vast possibility of reasons, few of which are well known. While the reasons are poorly understood, many convincing possibilities are in need of further study. The first is that patients quit medications when they do not feel like themselves on the medication. The second is that younger patients are more likely to adhere to medication than our older patients, as are those on longer-acting formulations. Psychosocial stressors and psychiatric comorbidities also appear to play a role. This review opens up the possibility of re-examining what is known about prescribing and patient follow-up. Importantly, it sheds light on what we ought to know but never thought to ask about patients who want to quit their medications. In this article, based on a study sponsored by the Netherlands Organization for Health Research and Development, the authors compared costs and effects for three different psychological treatments, schema therapy, clarification-oriented psychotherapy, and treatment as usual for six personality disorders. In this economic evaluation, researchers followed patients with avoidant, dependent, obsessive-compulsive, paranoid, histrionic, or narcissistic personality disorders for a period of three years after start of therapy. They assessed personality disorder-related symptoms, general and social functioning, and anxiety and depression, as well as all patient costs. Costs included health care, such as mental health care, medication, and consulting a general practitioner. Patient and family costs, such as traveling and out-of-pocket expenses. And costs related to absenteeism at work and other effects. 
After three years, participants were diagnostically assessed again by independent raters blinded for their treatment condition. Results showed that schema therapy had the most clinical effect. More of the schema therapy patients had lost the personality disorder diagnosis at the end of the study, and fewer patients dropped out of this therapy compared to other therapies. The level of general and social functioning in patients who had schema therapy was also higher, and fewer were still in care. Moreover, taking all costs into account, total costs were lower for schema therapy compared to clarification-oriented psychotherapy and treatment as usual. Better participation in the labor process played an important role. The authors conclude that schema therapy was found to be the most cost-effective intervention, being both less costly and more effective. The robustness of this finding was confirmed through several sensitivity analyses and the adherence to cost-effectiveness research guidelines. How long should Alzheimer's disease patients remain on cholinesterase inhibitors? In a recent meta-analysis supported through funding from the Alzheimer's Society of Canada Research Program, researchers examined the efficacy of these drugs after prolonged stable use in Alzheimer's patients. While the efficacy of cholinesterase inhibitors for cognitive symptoms over the short term has been consistently demonstrated, their long-term efficacy is unclear. As they have several clinically relevant side effects, it is important to know how effective they are after prolonged use to determine whether the benefits outweigh the side effects. Five randomized placebo-controlled studies were conducted in which Alzheimer's patients on stable therapy with cholinesterase inhibitors for an average of 11 months were randomized to either continue treatment or receive placebo. Meta-analysis revealed a statistically significant worsening of cognitive function and neuropsychiatric symptoms in patients randomized to discontinue the drugs. No differences in adverse events were observed between the groups, suggesting that side effects were not a clinical concern. Further, significantly more study dropouts were seen in the discontinuation groups. The authors note that the increase in study dropout may be related to a loss of therapeutic benefit in those randomized to discontinuation. The authors conclude that cholinesterase inhibitors remain a clinically effective treatment for Alzheimer's symptoms beyond the short term, and they advise clinicians to be cautious when considering discontinuation of therapy. The relationship between acute stress disorder and post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, in children is not well understood, although investigators have thought that individuals experiencing acute stress disorder are at greater risk for subsequent PTSD. The authors of this article conducted a study that examined whether children with burn injuries who had acute stress disorder during their initial hospital stay were more likely to develop PTSD at follow-up than children who did not experience acute stress disorder. Their study was supported primarily by a SHRINE grant and partially by the National Institute on Disability and Rehabilitation Research. Both groups of children were matched on total body surface area burned, 
gender, age at time of burn injury, and number of years since their burn. They were interviewed for presence of lifetime PTSD. Of 183 children who participated in the study, 85 matched pairs were identified. Most of the children's injuries had occurred five years prior to the time of the study. The authors found that at follow-up, the prevalence of PTSD was 8.2% for the group with acute stress disorder and 4.7% for the group without acute stress disorder. No significant differences or predictors were found between these groups. In their conclusion, the authors call for additional research to better understand the relationship between acute stress disorder and PTSD in children who have experienced a traumatic event. Clozapine is an important drug in the management of schizophrenia when a patient does not respond to other treatments. However, complications, including neutropenia and agranulocytosis, limits its use, and clinicians are often uncertain whether to rechallenge patients after hematological complications. Meyer and colleagues studied a cohort of 19 patients being rechallenged with clozapine in a specialist inpatient unit in the United Kingdom following previous neutropenia. Their objectives were to identify the success rate of rechallenge and to determine factors associated with successful and unsuccessful rechallenge. They also asked whether strategies, such as the use of lithium and granulocyte colony stimulating factor, improved outcome. Fifteen of the 19 patients were successfully rechallenged. Lithium and granulocyte colony stimulating factor aided rechallenge in four of the five patients who had benign ethnic neutropenia. Eight individuals who had a similar picture of chronic idiopathic neutropenia, but were not of an ethnicity associated with benign ethnic neutropenia, were successfully rechallenged with co-prescribed lithium. Four patients developed repeat neutropenia, and two of these patients developed agranulocytosis. These patients were significantly older, had a more rapid onset of neutropenia than in the first trial, and were more likely to be co-prescribed valparate. The authors conclude that, in a significant proportion of cases, the original dyscrasia was unlikely to be related to clozapine and with careful selection, oversight, and the use of adjunctive treatments, these patients can be successfully rechallenged. This study received funding in part from the National Institute for Health Research, Wellcome Trust King's Clinical Research Facility. Antipsychotics and some other psychotropic drugs are known to induce several metabolic complications that can have major implications for life expectancy. However, there is a large inter-individual variability in developing metabolic features that may be explained by clinical and genetic factors. Due to this variability, finding parameters to identify high-risk patients could improve the patient's health care. In the present study, which was funded in part by the Swiss National Research Foundation, the authors aim to determine the predictive power of an early weight gain on long-term weight gain after the introduction of weight gain-inducing psychotropic drugs. 
351 patients were included in a one-year longitudinal study recording metabolic parameters after introduction of antipsychotics, mood stabilizers, or antidepressants. Weight gain of more than 5% after one month of treatment was found to be the best predictor for a weight gain of more than 15% after three months of treatment and 20% after one year of treatment. Changes in appetite and physical activity during the first month did not predict long-term weight gain. The authors conclude that weight monitoring for all patients who start taking weight-inducing psychotropic drugs is important. Moreover, a weight gain of more than 5% during the first month of treatment should be used as an early warning sign for important long-term weight gain. A particular emphasis should be put on patients exceeding this 5% threshold in order to minimize the impact of weight gain on the quality of life and general health of patients. The prevention of severe psychotic disorders is a preeminent goal. Longitudinal research shows that clinical or ultra-high-risk criteria for psychosis can identify a group of at-risk individuals, of whom approximately one-third will convert to psychosis within three years. Results from this body of research have led to the inclusion of attenuated psychosis syndrome into Section 3 of the DSM-5 as a condition warranting further study. At the same time, an attenuated psychosis syndrome that newly emerges or worsens within the last 12 months can be coded in Section 2 of the DSM-5 as a self-contained entity under the category Other Psychotic Disorder. However, the predictive value of attenuated psychosis syndrome is much less clear during the period of adolescence, a developmentally critical time when many psychiatric conditions emerge. In this study supported by the National Institute of Mental Health and the Swiss National Foundation, 89 adolescent inpatients with a mean age of 15 years were consecutively enrolled. 24% met DSM-5 criteria for attenuated psychosis syndrome. Compared to adolescents with other non-psychotic psychiatric disorders, those with attenuated psychosis syndrome were more symptomatic across a number of psychopathology domains. They were also more clinically impaired. They were more likely to be diagnosed with a depressive or impulse control disorder and especially had more emerging personality disorder traits. The authors conclude that the entanglement with other emerging psychiatric disorders makes outcomes of youth with attenuated psychosis syndrome difficult to predict, causing the clinical dilemma of when and how to intervene. Patients who experience excessive daytime sleepiness, or EDS, may not realize how this symptom can negatively affect their quality of life work or school performance, or even their safety. It is up to clinicians to assess for EDS during the clinical interview and then follow up with necessary rating scales and objective tests. 
If EDS doesn't improve with good sleep hygiene and sufficient sleep time, an underlying sleep or psychiatric disorder or medical or neurologic condition may be contributing. Read this CME commentary, supported by an educational grant from Jazz Pharmaceuticals, to learn effective assessment tools and treatment strategies to help your patients improve their EDS and any associated conditions. The findings of a study can only be generalized to the population from which the sample of the study was drawn. Readers can gain insight about a study's population by examining both the selection criteria and the study's consort diagram or flowchart. In this month's Clinical and Practical Psychopharmacology column, Dr. Andrade looks at why this is so important, using two large randomized controlled trials as examples to illustrate how sample attenuation limits generalizability. The full text of this column is freely available online. Please visit the November Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. In this issue, we highlight three educational activities. Test your knowledge of the signs and symptoms of bipolar disorder by participating in this game-based CME activity supported by an educational grant from AstraZeneca. You'll follow the case of David, a 20-year-old college student, as you uncover rating scales and diagnostic criteria that can help with patient assessment. Solve the puzzles correctly and beat the scores of your friends and colleagues. While mood symptoms may remit in your patients with depression, lack of motivation and negative affect may keep them from achieving full recovery. Explore this CME activity, supported by an educational grant from Forest Laboratories, to learn how these residual symptoms hinder your patient's functioning and discover tools to assess quality of life and positive effect. Do you prescribe antidepressants for your patients with unipolar and bipolar depression? Read this CME activity, supported by educational grants from Synovian and Supernus, to find out which pharmacologic strategies are the most effective for bipolar depression and which agents work well as monotherapy or adjunctive therapy. In closing, be sure to visit us online for interactive activities from our CME Institute and more from the November issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites.